0: Welcome to the FemSplainers. I'm Danielle Crittenden. And I'm Christina hoff Summers. And today we have a really great guest. Her name is Dr. Deborah So. She is a sexual neuroscientist, which sounds a little hokey. It sounds a little hot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a little
0: kinky like brain sex or something like that. But actually, She looks at the science behind sexual differences. So this whole question, is gender a construction or what are its scientific bases? And we're talking so much about transgenderism, we thought it'd be really interesting to have someone with her background and experience on.
2: As a scientist. And listening to her and reading her always reminds me of what my friend and ally, Camille Paglia, always says, that the great tragedy of our age is that women's studies Its home is in the humanities, you know, comp lit departments and English lit. You have people that know nothing about biology, endocrinology, and, you know, basic anatomy. So here we have Deborah So. She has not immersed herself in the French philosophy, so she approaches it as a scientist. And what she says is illuminating and a basis for more informed policies, because I think you have to have truth before you have social justice.
0: One of the things she wrote about, she writes for Playboy. She's got a columnist for Playboy. And she, I,
2: Danielle said I couldn't mention this, but she is a dazzling beauty. A babe. And not that
0: writes, relevant. She writes for Playboy, though. She doesn't pose for Playboy. She could if she wanted to. Okay. But it's like, yeah, we read Playboy for the articles. Actually, you would genuinely read Playboy for her articles. I have been in Playboy. What? In fact, years ago, my dad would
2: always go out and get everything I was in. And I was once interviewed. About my book, Who Sold Feminism? My dad wanted to get a copy. At the time, he was a gentleman of a certain age living in a small (laughs) New England town, and he didn't want to go to the local country store and buy Playboy. So he drove across the border. He went to New Hampshire and bought it in Keene. And as he was leaving, he still felt he had to explain himself (laughs) to the clerk. And he said, I'm only buying this because my daughter's in it.
0: Oh, my (laughs) goodness. Oh,
2: my goodness. I have been in Playboy, but
0: she could be in Playboy for interviews or. I don't want to say it. Okay. She wrote very recently in Playboy about the politicization of evolution. What I find really funny about this is that she said that feminist political correctness is leading activists to align themselves really with creationists in terms of evolutionary The the
2: social construction theory of gender is creationism for intellectuals. Right.
0: Because if you say there is any kind of natural evolution, then you can't say gender is constructed. Is that... An idiot's guide to this theory? A good one. A good one. (laughs) And she said that, you know, Charles Darwin has been called a misogynist. Yes, it
2: is madness.
0: And we're supposed to
2: look at the world and see what we see. And we do see men and women. There's a continuum up to a point. But as Samuel Johnson said, the existence of twilight
0: doesn't prove there's no night or day. Oh, I thought you were going to say the existence of twilight doesn't prove there are vampires or not.
2: (laughs) I I think there could be vampires.
0: (laughs) Okay, so let's bring on Dr. Deborah So, a quick Femme Facts about her. She holds a PhD in sexual neuroscience from York University, which is in Toronto, and writes about the science and politics of sex. She's written for the Globe and Mail. She's LA Times. She's written for everybody. She's a columnist of Playboy, as we mentioned. And she's co host of a podcast called Wrong Speak with Jonathan Kay. And it's just an absolutely great podcast. great. I
2: heard a great episode of Wrong Speak where they had a comedian on there who was. Was this Ed
0: the Sock puppet? I don't know. Oh, he had Ed, Ed the he Sock. talked like that.
2: That was Ed the Sock Oh, he was puppet. so funny. And he pushed back, pushed back on everything they said. But then when they were reasonable, he'd subside. It's fantastic. That wasn't a comedian. That was a Sock puppet. Well, whoever he is, <laughs> I want to have him on FemSplainers. And he's a Canadian. You have some. <laughs> a puppet splainer. <laughs> All
0: right. Let's bring on Deborah. People are people, so why should it be?
2: Welcome to the FemSplainers. We're so happy to have you here and take advantage of your erudition knowledge as a neuroscientist. A sexual neuroscientist. How did you decide to become a sexual neuroscientist?
1: That's a very good question. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. I came upon sex research kind of by accident when I decided to go into graduate school. I was able to do a placement as part of my master's degree in sexology. I totally fell in love with it. I mean, I hadn't really heard much about sex research at that time. But thankfully, it's a growing field, sexual neuroscience in particular. So I use brain imaging to better understand paraphilias, which are unusual sexual preferences and hypersexuality in men. So it's a field that's growing, and I'm really happy to see the technology also advancing so quickly.
0: What's interesting is when I went to look this up, because otherwise, it's like when you hear someone's like a sexual therapist or something, you go, okay, what's up? This is like deadly serious what you do. I mean, you're looking at the structures and functions of the brain to see if and where there are differences. And you studied at York University in Toronto, which is, I was telling Christina before you came on, that it's like one of the most politically correct colleges in the world, the, yeah, in, maybe, at least in North galaxy. America. and Maybe it's the, the ground zero. How was it to start looking at gender differences there and study there?
1: I was very fortunate. I have to say York was extremely supportive of my project. I think I was the only person in my program actually doing sex research. So I'm sure when they got, you know, my ethics, uh, when you do a study, you have to apply for ethical approval. And I'm sure when they got it, they thought, what on earth is this person doing? But, you know, even though it's a very progressive school, and I guess some of my research could have been considered controversial, they've been very supportive of it. I didn't really have much issues in terms of any sort of interference at all. But we had, you know, state-of-the-art facility in terms of the MRI scanner. My colleagues were extremely supportive, so it was a really excellent experience.
0: That's great. Well, maybe the sciences are a little more walled off from interference or even understanding from the other students.
1: I would say. So especially, thankfully, in the hard sciences, I mean, we do see some of this ideology coming in a little bit more into biology, but for the most part, I think we're still doing okay. Well, let's move on to some
2: issues that you've addressed in your writings. We'll start with forgiveness for perpetrators, those who are accused of Me Too crimes. Just taking advantage of your understanding that, say, someone like Louis C.K. does seem to have an unusual sexual preference. Is this someone who you think needs treatment as well as we want him to express regret for what he did, which he's done? Or at what point do we forgive? Do we treat? How do we approach it?
1: Yeah, that was a recent column I wrote for the Globe and Mail. I guess I wasn't really that surprised to see the reaction when Louis C.K. made his, I guess, impromptu attempted comeback. This was about two weeks ago. And in terms of the immediate response, everyone was very upset. They said, no way. You are not coming back. You are not being forgiven. You are not allowed to go back to work and pretend like nothing happened. I'm someone who has worked in a research capacity as well as clinically with incarcerated sex offenders. It's very difficult to know whether someone is genuinely remorseful without actually sitting down and having a conversation with them. So it's really hard to, I guess, make any sort of judgment of Louis Dicay in particular. I mean, it sounds like he has been remorseful, but. Again, I don't want to speak to his case in particular, but sometimes individuals know that you need to say these things in order to be forgiven or to come across as though you are regretful. I think one of the most important things is antisociality. So men who do commit sexual offenses, that's one determining factor in terms of whether they will go on to commit further offenses or if it's something that maybe they did once and they realized the harm that they caused. In Louis C.K.'s case in particular, I wrote about exhibitionism, so this Mm -hmm. is a paraphilia. That involves exposing and what someone finds sexually rousing is the look of fear and surprise and shock on victims' faces. People who have paraphilias are predominantly men. So, not all men who are exhibitionistic necessarily do this to non consenting victims. Some people will have these fantasies and they will try not to act on them because they recognize that for most people, they don't really want to see that. (laughs) Again, that's antisociality that plays a role in it. But I think the only way we can really know is in terms of doing a proper psychological assessment. And my column spoke more broadly to this idea of forgiveness. If we're going to forgive celebrities for doing something like this, we need to be consistent and say, okay, would you also welcome someone at your workplace who has Mm -hmm. admitted to sexually Mm -hmm. abusing colleagues or subordinates? Would you also welcome him back into the workplace? I mean, I've been very critical of Me Too. I think in some ways it had maybe potential, but it's definitely gone off the rails. I do, in this case, understand a little bit the backlash in terms of how upset some people were in response to his appearance.
0: Well, somebody said on Twitter, which I thought was really funny, Catherine Valenti, she said, when you think about it, it's entirely fitting that Louis C.K.'s comeback involves surprising a captive audience in a tiny room by revealing themselves to them suddenly without their consent. But you've touched on something in this column that we've touched on on the podcast, especially, Christina, when we talked with Emily Yaffe about the pathologies behind the Harvey Weinsteins. and you said yeah. in this column you said in order to determine whether a sexual abuser has truly changed his ways we need to understand the root cause of his behavior i think one of the things i would like to see in someone like Louis CK and also understanding that what he did as you say it's like a flasher is different from a less moon vest or something like that but we're always talking about it in terms of power and not as these pathologies. And I wonder if the celebrity redemption for somebody like him, who clearly has some sort of issue, wouldn't be like celebrities who go into rehab, you know, and they come out and they say, well, I've gotten treatment for this. I understand it better. I'm deeply sorry. I'm learning to not do this again. I don't know how I feel, I guess, like you, that somebody vanishes for nine months, then shows up and expects to go on as normal even if to the degree he was apologetic, which I don't think he was really. I think he was. He
2: was and little... and you know, not that
1: this means anything, but didn't he ask permission to do it? <laughs> <laughs> he, apparently he did ask them first, but I guess when it's someone you know is influential in your field and he's asking to expose himself, he's, I think these women felt like they couldn't really say no, even though he was technically asking.
2: Oof, God, I just, I just don't know. Can you imagine a situation where you wouldn't
0: Run out of the room? I would. I would. I would scream and run. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, one of his victims, Rebecca Corey, was writing about this, and she talked about it was the last thing she wanted to do was come forward and criticize Louis C.K. And seem like... And she was one of the later ones to do it. But she started to get angry when people were just dismissing this as some, oh, you know, yeah, he asked permission. He just did this. And she just felt, I'm quoting her, she said, This guy exploited his position of power to abuse women. And a comeback, she writes, implies he's the underdog and victim, and he is neither. C.K. is a rich, powerful man who is fully aware that his actions were wrong. And I think on the phone call, there was no suggestion of permission. But he's got a problem. And I guess, Deborah, I'm asking, do you see a way to direct the conversation? Is it a right way to direct the conversation for people like him to get help before, you know, reappearing?
1: I think so. I would agree that nine months is not a lot of time. It can take sometimes years for some of these men to really gain insight into their behavior, if ever in their lifetime. I definitely agree with you in terms of what you're saying about power, and that it's not about power. You see plenty of men who are in positions of authority, who have lots of power, and who even have celebrity and are not doing this to women. So I think you know the feminist narrative about how this is about oppression or this is about Men dominating is just not accurate. And if we do want to end these kinds of behaviors, we have to have an accurate and honest understanding as to why they happen. So in terms of say, paraphilias, you know, there's a strong body of research that suggests it is something biological. It's not something that can be changed. That's not to say that people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. I mean, paraphilias are very rare in the general population, but if it's something that someone can't change, they can go away to therapy and they could go to a treatment facility. But if it's not targeting the right things, they can come out in three months or six months later and nothing will have changed because it's just not effective.
2: I have a question. You mentioned correctly that it's rare and that it's certainly not, you know, a condition that most people suffer from. But to the extent that people do suffer from paraphilic disorders, it tends to be men, small percentage of women. Are there female flashers and exhibitionists and fetishists? You hear a lot about Teachers with sixth grade boys and things like that.
1: Yeah. Well, let me think. In terms of, I listened to the podcast actually. In the episode where you had Emily offion and it was excellent. So I do agree. I think someone was saying that it's much more acceptable. Or this might have been the porn episode that it's much more acceptable for women to be exhibitionistic. Mm-hmm. Women are strippers, and but I think when we look at paraphilic disorders, one of the defining characteristics is whether it causes impairment or harm to an individual or to their partners. So I guess in the case of women it's more socially acceptable. I guess we wouldn't really consider it a disorder because the people who are seeing them exposing themselves, they're not really disturbed by it as much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can do it again.
3: Yeah, <laughs> Emily talked I about it. Could you open your Rick That woman who wanted, that.
0: To, who wanted to punish
2: men online who were sending, can I say dick pics on? They were
0: sending dick, <laughs> pics. dick pics. And then she <laughs> said, okay, I'm going to send them the equivalent. And They liked it. (laughs) Well, actually, I think you see more of this fixation. I I mean, I remember this horrific case. I don't know if a number of you remember, but of Carla Homolka. She and her boyfriend drugged and raped these young women, and she was a participant. And we've seen that in other crimes where the woman is a participant, but seems to get off lighter than the male perpetrator. In, In that case, it just seems like only maybe because she was female. Is that a fair assessment? One of our listeners commented that they felt that women got off more lightly for these types of crimes.
1: I definitely would agree with that. And I think that it's also just in terms of sexual abuse and assault of men, it's not really taken as seriously in our society. So I think that could be part of it. But from, say, a sexological perspective, paraphilias, as I mentioned, are predominantly in men. And so that, that includes pedophilia as well. So when you see women who commit these crimes against children, Usually, there's another reason why they're doing it. So either they have a male partner who is asking them to do it, or sometimes they may have, you know, personality disorder. They may be antisocial, and that's what's leading them to do it. It's not so much that they have a sexual preference for children. Because Mm -hmm. pedophilia is defined as a sexual preference for prepubescent kids, kids under the age of 11. Mm -hmm. So when we see women doing this, usually it's because there's a man who is rewarding her for that behavior.
2: Cherchez l'homme, always. Well, let's move on to rapid onset gender dysphoria. This has suddenly become a major controversy. There was a researcher at Brown University who published an article. Brown advertised it and then disassociated themselves from it. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Now, there are those who say that it's just a myth. We're not seeing a huge number of new cases. It's just people are freer now to come out and they are faulting this research. It's now a fad, transgenderism, according to this article. And for some young women, it's a kind of contagion. And the article said that you'll find them on Tumblr, you know, in- encouraging one another. And the parents then feel helpless because suddenly the daughter wants to have hormone treatments and perhaps disfiguring surgery. And this article endorsed the parent's position, but it says we, we better find out what's going on first. Created a huge controversy, and the author, Lisa Littman, stands by the research. And if you read the paper, I don't think she said anything outrageous. She was calling for more research. But what's going on with this debate, and where do you stand?
1: I definitely agree that rapid onset gender dysphoria is something legitimate. So it is a very controversial topic, as we saw with regards to how the public responded to Lisa Littman's study and also Brown's response within the field sexologists agree that this is something that's growing. So these predominantly girls, their adolescents and young adults who have had no previous history of gender dysphoria will one day out of the blue announce that they are transgender and say that they want to transition, they want to get access to hormones, and their parents are at a loss because they will that doesn't make any sense. But because of the current political climate, clinicians are very quick to jump on this and affirm the child. And so parents are really fighting an uphill battle. So with this study, as as you mentioned, Lisa Littman showed that there is an aspect of it that is a social contagion. And with these girls, I can't remember how many, I think it was something like 50% of the sample had at least a friend group that had at least 50% of the girls also transgender. So I don't know if you can imagine being in school and 50% of your friends also identify as transgender. That seems like a lot. And if you look at the statistics, say, of Americans. 6 in 1,000 people identify as transgender, and this is a number that has doubled in the last 10 years. So it's still a very small proportion of the population. And so the fact that it's so prevalent among teenage girls, I think, should raise some red flags. So, you know, Brown pulled their press release of the study when it came out as a result of activist pressure, and now the academic journal that published this study is also reviewing it in terms of its analyses and its content, which is really unheard of because usually when a study is published and it's been peer-reviewed, that means obviously that other experts have looked at this, they've said this is good to go, or they give you feedback and and you need to update it and meet these certain criteria before it's published and available to the public. So the fact that the journal is now saying that for some reason they need to go and review this again, I don't think it has anything to do with the methodology. I've read the study and it was fine in my mind. I thought it was an excellent study. I think it is more that the findings were found to be controversial. And as a result, they had to do that just to make a certain vocal minority happy.
0: Well, let's talk about adolescent girls in this respect, because, I mean, we've seen over the past few decades, I mean, waves of self-harm in some ways. So, you know, for a while, anorexia was, was a very big deal. So many girls suddenly seemed to be anorexic or developing eating disorders. And this wasn't to say that they weren't or were not troubled, but it was expressing itself through eating disorders. Then we went through a phase of cutting where girls who were distressed would start cutting themselves. There was multiple chemical sensitivity. Less so, I think, amongst adolescent girls. That seemed to be an older woman Middle-aged women. But obviously, teenage girls, and maybe you know why because you've looked at their brains, have more difficult time with themselves in adolescence for a myriad of reasons. And so find outlets to express this. And right now, maybe the way that a big number of girls are expressing it is have gender dysphoria. And we'll find that it's a real thing and that there are people and girls who really are boys who are suffering this. But it's also part of a kind of trend. A cry for help expressed in a trendy fashion. Is that fair or unfair?
1: I think so. I think because gender is seen as such a trendy topic nowadays. From the study, some of the parents reported that for their children, the teachers were very much anti-bullying for transgender students, even more so than other groups of students that would be bullied. So nowadays, it seems like kids are being given brownie points for coming out as transgender. This is something that I've heard from parents I've spoken to as well. In terms of why girls struggle with this in particular, I think puberty is a difficult time for everybody. And I think for girls, these changes to your body, they can be unexpected. They can be quite drastic in some ways. And and I've heard also some girls, you know, they don't like the attention that they're now getting. So I think instead of saying to them, you know, this is normal, this is just a part of life, now they're being told, okay, instead, maybe you should be a boy. And I think in some ways, Maybe in that way, you would get less attention if you were a boy going through puberty. But I understand the concern in that transgender people have had a history of medical gatekeeping and having difficulty accessing care and appropriate resources. But I don't think the solution is to go completely in the opposite direction and saying, okay, across the board now, anyone who says they're transgender, including children, should be taken at face value.
0: You said at one point that most gender dysphoric kids, if they're left alone and don't transition, grow up to be gay. Yes, that's right. It could be just a stage they're
2: going through and then they'll be
0: cisgendered and as gays.
1: I don't like the word cisgender, <laughs> but I agree with you. I just wanted to be. Able I, to never, use it I in a never really way. <laughs> understand.
0: I, I think of it like cisgender, bro gender. I'm just. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you get labeled a radical feminist yeah. when you say you don't like the word cisgender, and I'm also definitely. I think radical feminists would definitely say I'm not one of their own. You get labeled a of- TERF. It's a turf. A trans Trans. exclusionary radical feminist.
2: Oh. Some of my best friends. I I think I'm gonna stick
0: with the MILF category. I think I like that one better.
2: Please join the FemSPlaners.
0: Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the FemSplaner Podcast. And find the FemSPlaners on Facebook and
2: Twitter at FemSplainers. And learn all about us at FemSplainers.com.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainer. We're talking to Dr. Deborah So, a sexual neuroscientist and co-host of the podcast Wrong Speak. You wrote about a puppet now being introduced to grade school children. This came out of Montreal and it said, this is from the news item, the young school age puppet named Julia feels in her heart she's a boy and wants to be called Julian or Julien in French. And it comes with videos. And I, I guess it's sort of like ses- transgendered ses- Sesame Street. Like, is this a good idea, do you think, showing this to school age kids, introducing them to puppets? I mean, I remember the whole controversy when Heather Has Two Mommies books were introduced to make kids in kindergarten feel okay that yeah, but I like they have Heather gay has parents. Two mommies.
2: But we were all sort of shocked. Yeah, and- right. We were shocked, and maybe we were wrong. And I remember yeah. when Heather Has Two Moms came out and there was a, a nightline with Ted Koppel. And he wasn't buying it. And then someone was defending it. And he said, what are we going to have? You know, a book like Tommy's Dad's in the Slammer. <laughs> but the book wasn't for everyone. It was yeah. for kids who did have two mommies. And if Tommy's Dad's in the Slammer, there could be a book for Tommy. We, we become... <laughs> Mommy's on opioids. <laughs> we, yeah, Mommy's well, asleep Tommy's in the alley again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can take it too far, but I go back and forth. Because I think that it's possible that we are witnessing a kind of gender revolution and people are not going to be as rigidly defined. We're going to be far more accepting. And we will look back and see that, yeah, people went too far and made mistakes. But we all think that the gay revolution was necessary and heroic. And now we have the trans movement. And I haven't made up my mind on issues like, you know, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Maybe it is just a fad.
0: I think it's a fad, but it's maybe overblown. Like, people are gravitating to right. it to express other problems. As Deborah says, that they ultimately turn out to be gay, but this is a way of
2: it expressing it in a more socially acceptable way. And it is way. a way to, in the economy of prestige on campus, they're at the top of the pyramid in terms of yeah. for oppression points and things. So that, that's an incentive. On the other hand, the fact that they say, oh, well, they're only talking to other kids like themselves on Tumblr, well, if I had a problem like that or an issue like that, I'd be talking to people like myself. So I'm not sure that's evidence necessarily of coercion, but I
1: don't know. I guess the concern with that is that it's so consistent. Like it was really eerie for me to hear the stories from these parents. So I host the podcast Wrong Speak with Jonathan Kaye And Which is ep- excellent, by the way. Thank you so much. We did an episode on rapid onset gender dysphoria, and I found it very unsettling that the stories that these parents would come to me with, were identical and literally their daughters would spend hours in their bedrooms on Tumblr watching transition videos on YouTube and just they would come out of their bedroom one day after watching hours and hours of these stories and saying, okay, I'm transgender too. So I, I understand what you're saying, Christine, and that you know there's a community on, on these sites, but these sites are also teaching the kids how to lie to their parents, how to lie to therapists in order to get access to hormones that can have irreversible effects on their bodies.
0: That's the scariest thing. I think that's what scares me, that your child comes to you and says, you know, I'm transgender. And you go, okay, honey, that's fine. I love you for whoever you are. But then they start wanting at 14, 15, 16, when your body and brain is still under such incredible development and change. And then you start putting hormones into it. And then you start looking at cosmetic surgeries and things like that. That's the part I think that is potentially so devastating, not least to the people who might turn 20 or 25.
1: Also, they usually have some other psychiatric comorbidity, so they'll have a diagnosis of autism or self-harming or trauma, borderline personality Mm -hmm. disorder. And the clinician will say to the parents, the ones who I think are a little bit more clear-minded will say, your daughter does not have gender dysphoria. But I can't go on the record as saying that. Mm-hmm. They'll acknowledge that it's due to something else, but just because of the climate, they can't say anything. Going back to the puppet, and I, I think it's a terrible idea, as Danielle mentioned, the majority of young children who do have a history of gender dysphoria, so from a young age, feeling that they are more like the opposite sex, they're more likely to grow up to be gay. And I think what we're seeing is it's trendier to be transgender instead of being gay. I mean, there's still quite a bit of homophobia in our society and I think also the transgender, the activist groups are almost intentionally conflating being transgender with being gay in a way. They say it's different, but in terms of it can't be changed, this is something you felt from a very young age because they know homophobia is terrible. I mean, I grew up in the gay community, I saw what my friends had to go through when we were younger and it was awful and thankfully things are different now, not perfect but it's better. And I think what these activists are doing, and in a way, is kind of conflating this intentionally so that the public says, okay, we don't want to make the same mistakes we made before. We don't want to challenge anyone who says they are a certain way and tell them that they're not really that way.
0: Well, Christina, doesn't this go back, like, it's another manifestation of what we've been talking about for 20 years, that there is a a big part of the academic and scientific community that wants to prove that gender doesn't matter. So... Men and women, like if the minute you say men and women are different, it means women are oppressed. They want to keep bringing the narrative back to gender. They want to bring down the gender system. They are... Except different. to the degree it affects men, that men are clearly the bad gender. Right. So yeah. I, I never quite followed the logic. If men are the bad gender, that means then they are different, except that I guess we're all socially... They would say constructed. we're socially
2: constructed and given privileges under patriarchy. And it's this reductivist, simplistic sociology or, you know, sexology. And it's
0: very alluring, but explains very little. Well, well, this goes to what I found, like you wrote this article called The Futility of Gender-Neutral Parenting. And this is where it really hits all of us well-meaning parents. I remember with my first child, a daughter, for the first nine months, and I wasn't even approaching this in a political or ideological way. I just thought, I'm not going to give her dolls necessarily. I'll give her educational toys, blocks, little boards that light up, you know, little puzzles and things like that. And one day she had a babysitter who took her a couple times a week to the park and she came back. This babysitter came back from the park and she said, I think Miranda was like 10 months, like 11 months old. You have to get this child, a doll stroller and a doll because. Miranda was going to the other little girls in the park and (laughs) pushing them over and taking their dolls. And I was sort of horrified but impressed. And you have written in this wonderful article in General Neutral Parenting, you said a large and longstanding body of research literature shows that toy preferences, for example, are innate, not socially constructed or shaped by parental feedback. And that most girls will gravitate towards socially interesting toys like dolls that help social and verbal abilities develop. And most boys will gravitate towards toys that are mechanically interesting, like cars and trucks. And you said this has even been observed in monkeys. That's right. So talk about that a little. When do we see gender sort of emerge in children? And are we really helpless to control it? Is it, is it really innate? Is there no directing it?
1: I think definitely social influence can play a role, but it can't override biology. And so I was inspired to write that piece it was for the, the Los Angeles Times because I find that the holiday season every year pretty consistently A whole bunch of these opinion pieces will come out saying that toys should be gender neutral. We shouldn't gender toys. We should encourage girls to play with boys' toys, which you is a whole other issue I have in terms of basically telling girls that they can't be female typical, that there's something wrong with that. But in terms of what the scientific research shows, it's prenatal testosterone exposure that dictates what a child will gravitate towards when they're born, so higher levels of exposure are associated with more Mm -hmm. male-typical interests and activities, and lower levels of exposure are associated with more female-typical interests and activities. So this is regardless of whether the baby is male or female. So if you have a boy who is more female-typical when he's born, he was likely exposed to lower levels of testosterone.
2: Well, talk about the CAH girls, the girls with, what's it, congenital adrenal hyperplasia.
1: Yeah, so the same thing with these girls. They were exposed to, higher-than-usual levels of testosterone in utero. When they are born, they gravitate towards male-typical toys. And this is even in the case when their parents give them more praise for playing with female-typical ones. So it's not accurate to say that toy choices and interests, I think, in adulthood are the result of social conditioning or parents and teachers and the media. And, you know, I I think that should be totally fine. I think kids should be allowed to play with whatever they want. Except matches. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly.
2: What did you play with? Were you a conventional little girl or did you play like, as we used to call Tom? Were you a tomboy?
1: <laughs> I was definitely more of a boy. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I still am. But I played with all boys' toys. I hated girls' toys. I looked like a boy. I dressed like a boy. Did definitely. your parents I, flip I, out? I, yeah, no. What it, no. No? No, they, they were extremely supportive. And, you know, that, that's also a reason why I take issue, I guess, with the, the transgender narrative nowadays because I feel like girls like me, would be encouraged to transition when I'm straight, but we grow up to be perfectly content in the bodies that we have. Were you a tomboy, Daniel? Mm, I became
0: scrappy, but I wasn't a tomboy. I was made scrappy by my stepfather who taught me like, how to box and throw a baseball and things like that. But it wasn't my natural gravitation. Oh, okay. But no, we've known, we have actually, Christina and I, we recently, a very good friend of ours who has a two-year-old daughter she was almost hysterical. Can I describe it as this? Because yes, the, and she thinks their daughter's trans because she, the daughter because
2: wants mom, to be a boy.
0: She suddenly, in the past two weeks, she doesn't even want to be a boy. She decided she's an older brother. She wants to wear pants. She
2: and, hates dolls. She hates sparkly ponies. I don't get hating but it just But
0: it just suddenly happened, though. It was as if she'd almost become aware of her brother. Rapid onset.
2: But the, the mother was... Two, but I t- we said a two-year-old, they'll do anything. Or should she be worried?
0: Deborah, like, should she be planning no, the kid's no. surgery? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, kids say all kinds of things. And definitely for kids who say that they are the opposite sex, usually that's just a way of them saying that they want to do things that the opposite sex does. So a little girl may not have the vocabulary to say, I want to wear pants like boys do. She'll say, if I want to wear pants. That must mean I'm a boy. Or if my parents will not let me wear pants, then I must be a boy because that's the only way I'll get to do that. So
2: what I told yeah, them I, is I, I, she's going to be a
0: handful. <laughs> <laughs> she just figured out how to she's figure out yeah how to set them. But it's just too early. Enough. Well, how, Deborah does when you say there's more testosterone to a baby in utero, why does that happen? Like, how do you end up having more of one hormone than the other?
1: It can be a variety of things. It can be due to like congenital adrenal hyperplasia is a genetic condition. It can be Disorder. due to teratogens in the environment sometimes it's difficult to know. It could just be a source of natural variation that for some reason the woman was producing more testosterone. But usually it's determined by tests and looking at, you know, the amniotic fluid and also when the baby is born.
0: So we just don't know. It's not like something has been injected or added or it's just a natural phenomenon?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in the case of, say, CAH, it is considered a disorder regardless of whether someone has a genetic condition or not. They deserve equal rights and, and respect. But It is due to differences in terms of how the fetus develops. Let
2: me ask you something. There was a story recently on NBC News about a couple in Cambridge. They have twins, Zyler and Caden. Give away there. uh, They decided (laughs) that they were not going to gender their kids. They don't tell anybody who they are. They give them gender-neutral clothes, gender-neutral toys. And they, I think they're going to try to find a school with like-minded people, and they just—they're hiding the, the whole concept from their kids. And now they're very little. What they say is that it upsets a lot of people. They—they
0: they, they have a term for them. They're
2: theybies or something. They're, yes, they're theybies, right? Instead of babies. So they're. Pronouns. So you mean
0: so when they're walking down the street and a confused bystander coos over them, says, "Oh, what darling children." What are their names? And the names, of course, don't tell you whether that's they're a boy or a girl. like
2: on Saturday Night Live <laughs> right? where you try to guess. Yeah.
0: And then when they say, oh, uh, and they, you can't say, is it a boy or a girl? Because that's embarrassing, right? Because it feel like you're insulting the child because you can't tell. Right. Is that, so they're keeping like neutral haircuts. It's also
1: a patriarchal gender binary,
0: right? Right. Right. Like, the gender that's... binary. We can't have that. So what do they say? They just say, we, we don't want to tell.
2: Why is it important? It's largely progressive parents, upper middle class in latte towns who are doing this. I mean, it's an interesting experiment.
0: Well, how long does it last? How long can the parents maintain that? It's really a
2: bullying over the kids' bullying. Well, that's it. That's what I find fascinating, is in the name of liberation. Right. They are going to end up having to police their children in ways that are reminiscent of, you know, conversion therapy for gays. Now there's conversion therapy for heterosexual kids. That's
1: right. (laughs) Good point. Yeah. I think these parents are... Some of them are trying to show off in terms of how open-minded and progressive they are. I think some parents genuinely think that this is the quote-unquote right thing to do to raise their child nowadays, or maybe they don't have any sort of understanding of how biology works. You know, I hear a lot of similar stories to yours, Danielle, where both parents will say, I want to raise my child with gender-neutral toys or give them atypical toys, so giving girls trucks and giving boys dolls, but then their child will still naturally gravitate towards the sex-typical toys. As mm-hmm. they leave the home and they go to school and they see what other kids are playing with, they will gravitate towards those. And I've, I've heard stories of parents being actually aghast about this and saying, I don't want my daughter playing with dolls. One parent said to me that she gave a child a doll for her birthday and the parents were horrified and said, you can't give that to our daughter. So, I mean, I think that's what sex is. It's not sexist to say that boys and girls and men and women are different. It's this idea that women have to conform to men in order to be considered the same or equal. Right. Or even vice versa in some cases. But
0: Yeah, Deborah, yeah I, I see that as well. We, we know you, you're on a, a tight time crunch, but it's been just amazing to have you on and we hope to have you on Again, because we can just talk to you really about and anything. She's she's just a great sex explainer. <laughs> she's a great sex explainer. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun. I love you guys. So this has been great. Okay, before you go, quickly, you must have a genetic cocktail you like.
1: Oh. We, we always <laughs> we're, 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 we are
0: drinking, and we're, we're always
1: Danielle's today. It's still summer. It's kind of resortive. Of. Yeah. What is your favorite cocktail? I'm so jealous. Actually, you know what? I actually quit drinking a year ago. But my favorite drink was vodka cran. Because I felt like it was very healthy. A vodka them. what?: vodka cranberry? Oh, oh vodka and cranberry.
0: cranberry. Yeah, that's for people who don't really, That's what you drink when you're 14 and you don't want your parents to <laughs> and you don't really drink.:
2: So you've just told or people,
1: people say it, you can only drink that when you have a UTI, but I would think, well, <laughs> this is why I'm so healthy.:
0: <laughs> All right, but you don't drink, do you have a favorite
1: mocktail? Mm, that's a good question. Nowadays, because I tell myself I'm very responsible, I'm very big on fizzy water, so I don't know if that. At home. Oh my god. Oh gosh. Well okay,
0: well <laughs> it's a good thing you're not in the studios because we'd probably cause you a relapse. <laughs> we'd buy you with alcohol. so be careful if you need a Yeah, we'll we'll be careful. All right, Deborah, thank you again so much for coming. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you. This was awesome.
2: I find her so interesting. You know, people are always complaining about Twitter. I found her on Twitter. Mm-hmm. We found each other. And then I started following her and, and looking at her articles. And frankly, I mean, she's young. She's brilliant. She's a dissident thinker. And I feel I have a friend. <laughs> Before I was isolated, I mean, it was Camille Polly, and me and a few others.
0: You always had me. I always, I, but I wasn't on Twitter. I try to stay off Twitter. Everyone's so mean. on. You know what? Can I just say thank you to our FemSplainer listeners and followers? Because they are unfailingly great. And then you stray out, like, into your feed or any other person's feed, and it's just filled with terrifying Not my feed. I have the nicest No, followers. you have great followers, too. But occasionally you'll get these just awful, awful trolls.
2: Yeah, once Maybe in a while. Twitter is a, a tough arena. It's a tough arena, but
0: I love it. <laughs> but anyway, we got one listener email that is kind of relevant, I think, to the Dr. So talk that we had today. And it's directed at you, Christina. So he says, I listen to audiobooks as I do my chores and housework, but now I eagerly listen to you guys. (laughs) This is nice. This is nice. Chores and housework. I think he's single. I thought these were assignments. (laughs) Anyway, he said, I was wondering if I could ask for some professional advice. I'm a PhD student at Stanford, and I'm currently the only male in my department. I do enjoy the company of my colleagues, but sometimes there is real friction and awkwardness. They are all... Quote unquote, woke feminists, constantly talking about the evils of white men, casually throwing around the term misogynist to almost any male who criticizes their work, and the list goes on. This doesn't happen on a daily basis or anything, but it happens enough to make me feel uncomfortable. Mostly, I just keep my head down and try to avoid conflict, but there have been a few minor disagreements. Dr. Summers was actually the source of one of them, because I went to her event at the Hoover Institution with Andrew Sullivan. And when this got out, I got a very stern talking to on Facebook about how I need to be a male ally and how that woman is a rape apologist. I try to take the path of least resistance, but sometimes it can be very difficult. I also know that the academy isn't going to get better anytime soon, so I'm really worried about my future. As an academic, Mrs. Summers, do you have advice on how to traverse this world without getting crucified? The first thing
2: I can say is, You're in big trouble. (laughs) You will be crucified. However, more optimistically, keep your sense of humor. I don't know. I'm trying to imagine what department you were in where it's that bad early childhood education or what could it be? Psychology. But here's the thing even among your colleagues, there are probably a lot of people who would secretly agree with you. And I always tell people to be civil and honest about your views. Don't be contentious and don't assume bad motives in the people you're debating because not everybody, but most people are trying to do their best and don't have evil motives. They're just confused. And it sounds like a lot of your, your fellow students are confused and perhaps indoctrinated, but people don't like to hear that. So I would just be careful.
0: Well, there's sometimes we're always being told, you know, stand up for yourself, be who you want to be. No, no, and no, and no, maybe no, there a, are sometimes not, a, not to be a hero, like you can't always be the one person hero. But I also find in those situations where you don't want to engage, and it's really impossible because you're getting back to, I don't know, basic principles where you have to argue the whole history of gender, like, right. and you just think, why? I, I, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to change this person's mind. But you can always say things like, that's interesting. Why do you think that? Right. And you just keep saying, really, why do you think that? Why do you think that? And it's sometimes without seeming aggressive and even interested in what they have to say, forces them in a way to have to think about more what they're saying instead of just reflexively saying you're a rape apologist you know why would you say that well she wrote this well how is that a rape op- i mean you can just oh show question. me like, what did she say can yeah you- oh but but in a in, in a friendly way not in a
2: confrontation yeah way, friendly but. and assuming the best and then Maybe sometimes finding other areas where you can be friends and things you agree on and then later. I think later. you just maybe go to a sports bar. I think, yeah. Go to a sports <laughs> bar, have a lot of drinks, and then let it rip. Well, that's
0: what <laughs> led my son to join a frat at his college. The first week as a freshman in his dorm, he went down to watch, I think it was some sort of playoff was going on. Anyway, he goes down to watch this, and there's a bunch of women sitting in the common room, and they're Actually, he, I think he was there first, so he got to the television first, and then the women came down. No, it's football, and, he, and they go, "Ugh, men in tight pants just running around—how stupid!" And at that moment, he realized, "Okay." Short of finding a sports bar because he was underage, he went and joined a frat, where basically the whole point of going there was so you could just sit and watch sports without nasty comments about. I thought they were
2: going to say they—they thought the men were cute. They were watching them for the- these weren't those kind of women. Oh. But if it was Tom Brady, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but now, based on what your son experienced at Swarthmore, just during the break, I was talking to our research assistant and tech diva, Zoe, who told us about Sarah Lawrence College, the epicenter of political correctness. And you went
3: there. What year did you start there? I started in 2014, and I was there until the spring of 2016.
2: What was it like in terms of gender and <laughs> openness and diversity? She was kind of nodding through this
0: Debra So interview. We saw her.
3: Yeah, I would say that the, the non-official catchphrase of Sarah Lawrence is queer in a year or your money back. That's, that's sort of the joke on campus because the campus used to be a women's college. So it's, there are some men, but it's pretty much 75, 25. And, okay, of the 25% of men, how many of them are gay? I would say probably most of them. The, the percentage of straight males on campus that remain straight through their four years, if they stay for four years, is very small.
0: Well, I would say, like, male listeners, like, if you're thinking of applying to college, and want a really great dating ratio. <laughs> uh, apply right. that to Sarah Lawrence.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I can actually see one of my sons. He, he went to a, a program in Aix en provence for French, and it was like 75 Swedish girls and him. However, they were not lugs. <laughs> well, it used to be lesbians until graduation. Mm-hmm. No, they were Swedish girls. And he loved it. He loved the ratio. But it sounds like you're going to get arrested if you're a... You found
3: it very suffocating. Yes.
2: And, um, but were the classes... I mean, Sarah Lawrence used to be synonymous with the most, you know, serious, rigorous education.
3: I will say the classroom experience, I think, is still rated number one in the country because class size is about 10 students to each professor. And okay, they have, what are those
2: 10 students doing?
3: Every classroom is considered a safe space. So you can get up in the middle of class if you feel unsafe in the space, declare that you feel unsafe and walk out.
2: Okay, and, I, I'm going to walk out of this interview
3: because I'm not
0: feeling safe. Just hearing about this, it's raising my blood pressure. Yeah. I think there should be bomb shelters. Like I'm like, thinking like there's going to be air raid sirens and it, it's okay, we're in a safe space. We're fine. Yeah.
2: How, what, so what, what created an unsafe space?
3: It would be, you know, if a professor was talking about a topic that Number one, he didn't give he or she didn't give a trigger warning to the class about discussing a particularly controversial, sometimes not even controversial topic. A student would feel that they weren't comfortable talking about that topic and that they weren't warned that the topic was going to be discussed. So, you know, for example, I took one of the few classes that I took that actually I I got a lot out of was a, a politics class, and we it was before Trump had been elected. It was during the primary season. And we were simply talking about Marco Rubio's pro-choice versus pro-life stance. And as soon as the pro-life stance was brought up by a student, not even advocating for it, just merely the subject merely matter, stating it. someone else in the class got up and said, I don't feel safe in this space and walked out of the classroom. This sounds like the best way to get out of doing any work <laughs> and, at yeah. all. And you, you can't lose credit for it. You can't lose credit for That's the class. Perfect. <laughs> is, isn't, is, is Sarah Lawrence pass-fail? So they actually don't have grades. What? um, What? (laughs) Or exams or tests of any kind. What? But they have tutorials like Oxford. Yeah, it's based on the Oxford style. So you write usually about an average 20-page paper for each class at the end of each semester, and that counts as your exam. It's interesting. You get a letter from each professor that details each paragraph is basically talked about an assignment that you did for the class, and in very intense detail will talk about you as a student. (gasps) So instead of a grade... So you know about
0: your ideas.
2: Oh God, I would hate to be a professor there. You have to write all of that. You can't at least when I was teaching from it, you could just put a damn grade on it and hope for the best. But are you you like you have to 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 be
0: awesome like but um, then presumably if the professor can't engage you and say, I think you you know, you should have explored this more or I don't think your interpretation was on point. They have to say how awesome you are, like it's about you?
3: Oh, no, no, no. They can be very critical because you get to know the professors very well, because in addition to class, you have to meet with each one of your professors for at least a half an hour once a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Note to
2: self, never <laughs> teach at Sarah Lawrence.
3: So it's it, it sort of, you know, I transferred out, so I had to have a transcript to be able to go to different schools and apply. So if, if you ask for it, they will turn those letters into a transcript with traditional A through F Oh, that's grades. so funny! The translator. I don't really know how that algorithm. works. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, my late husband, the brilliant philosopher Fred Summers, taught at Sarah Lawrence. Really. And it didn't work out. He was had been at Columbia, and then he was at Sarah Lawrence, and he became chair at Brandeis. But at Sarah Lawrence, was this once it had become co-ed, or was it no? It was always it was all women. But he was an analytic philosopher. And he was trying to teach them logic, and he was you know at high standards. He grades. He he was a tough grader. And then the dean brought him in and said to him at Sarah Lawrence, we teach the student, not the subject. And then Fred said, mm. well, what do you teach the student? And that was considered, <laughs> you know, a completely heretical question. Anyway, he, he fled. Well, this is a long time ago. But nevertheless,
3: they could have had Fred Summers, this great logician, and it would have been great for the women, but no. And it's gender becomes part of the conversation in every single class that you take, no matter the subject. Uh, every single class? So what if you yeah. took military history? That doesn't exist. It doesn't there. exist. No. They don't let that happen. I mean, they don't have anything like Gen Eds. So the, the classes that are available from semester to semester are usually never available again. I would say theater classes are really the only ones that have any sort of consistency because they have you know a basic theater class for freshmen
2: where you can act out your anorexia <laughs> women, or, your or can women be male? Yeah, yeah. And now it's all trans. I mean, is the vagina monologues
3: based for years and now it's gone on to because mm-hmm.
2: yeah. that's transphobic. It turns <laughs> out
3: it's it's very much a bubble. My concern when I was a freshman was I was looking at all of the seniors that were graduating across majors in different fields, and none of them had any idea what they were going to do post-graduation.
2: I know what they do. They can be on the New York Times editorial page. No, they can be at can Starbucks. <laughs> no, no, it, they get, they're getting, well, I don't know. I don't know what they Yeah, do. where do they go? They, most of them in the theater. go
3: to one of the five boroughs of New York City and live in an apartment and are suffering artists, but it's an apartment. And have cats, and I'm not saying anything negative about squash, because <laughs> your cat your cat counts as a dog. <laughs> yes. But no, it's, it's mostly people who their parents and their trust funds will pay for their apartment in New York, and they don't really have to work.
2: Yeah, I considered going to Sarah Lawrence. But even back in the last century, it was a million dollars a year. It's, Is it?
3: Still... It's close to $72,000 a year.
2: Yeah, it was almost, I mean, even, so I ended up, my father did not understand why.
0: But your kid comes out feeling really, really good about themselves. And unable to face any kind of reality. I don't think. I think you have a nervous breakdown there.
3: Oh, that's why a lot of people leave. Well, that's, you said there's yeah, a huge their retention uh, rate is yeah. is close to only eighty percent, which which sounds high, but their student population is only fifteen hundred people.
2: Okay, so twenty percent leave, and I would think those would be. Nervous breakdown, people. Although they may want no, to stay. Maybe, no they want maybe to stay. no. The people, people leave
0: like are you, saying. they lost
3: you. Yeah, they getting, lost me. I'm yeah. getting the hell so out of here. So well, how were how were you received by? So I sort of I burned my bridges in a way because I was working for the Odyssey at the time that I, I left Sarah Lawrence, and I actually wrote an article about why I was leaving, and Hang I on, published the Odyssey is it's it's an online publication that's run by college campuses. Okay, so they they have a their own entity on each campus, right. but basically. I wrote a goodbye to Sarah Lawrence letter where I talked about why I was leaving, and I was pretty hypercritical of the student body and the style of education. And I had lots of people either respond and harass me or unfriend me on Facebook, which is fine. You know, I I, 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 I can take criticism. That's fine. But the interesting part for me, actually, was I had a lot of students that reached out to me that agreed with a lot of what I was saying, but stayed.
0: Right, but that's it's it's always this. Most people are not heroes. Right. they just want to, I, and this is what happened to my son. He just decided he found his frat, like so many. He started up a couple times, and they just, you know what? I'm just gonna get my grades. Although he had one funny, funny thing happen. They did have a phenomenal teacher of ancient history, and they're studying okay. ancient Rome. And the teacher was male. Teacher was talking about slaves and slavery and the role it played in ancient Rome. And <laughs> a girl did this. She got up and she complained and said, I don't want to talk here about slaves. I find it very upsetting. Triggering. And he apparently said, well, I'm sorry, we're studying ancient Rome. Right. We have to talk about slavery. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I'm sure Nat will correct me after this, but it was a great show of bravado in the professor, but I think, I think there was some kickback from the faculty that you hadn't taken this seriously enough, the complaint seriously mm. enough. So it's, it's, it's insane. But anyway,
3: don't send your child to
0: Sarah Lawrence. $72,000 a year.
3: I think it might still be the most. Expensive. it was it's been it, in a battle with NYU. The year that I was there, it was the most. Expensive.
2: So that's where I went, NYU. Yeah. My dad said, so you found the second most
0: expensive. <laughs> I, I think, you know what I do? If, if that were the case, I'd say, you, you know what? Here is $210,000, $280,000. Take I'm it. investing it for you, <laughs> and you and you do
3: what you want. <laughs> go travel. <laughs> yeah. Go read. And had it had it not been for financial aid, I never even right. would have come close to considering. But right. what's funny is most of the people that go to Sarah Lawrence pay face value. They don't really have. Well, they're any. they're like Lena Dunham. I mean, she was at right. Oberlin, but
2: that's right. kind of interchangeable. I mean, more PC than Oberlin.
3: Do you, you think
0: Sarah Lawrence? You implode. These schools could actually. Implode. I think they are. I mean, I do you feel. You would know this much better than I, Christine, because you're in this world more than I am. But there is a growing rebellion of parents who are saying, what am I getting for my $72,000? Like, there's this obsessive thing. You have to go to college. You have to go to a good college. I don't
2: agree. I don't agree. I think think what parents want... I mean, if you get into a school like that, it's very hard to get in these schools. So Swarthmore and Sarah Lawrence and...
3: It's actually quite easy to get into Sarah Lawrence now. 50% acceptance rate in 2018.
2: Oh, Oh my God. When I applied, it was... Impossible to get in.
3: Yeah. It, well, it might be because of the retention. Exactly. Right? <laughs> when oh. I applied, it was closer to 30. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's been two years out since I've left, and it's gone up that much. Oh, but,
2: So
0: they still have a good name. So it's still prestigious, but easier
2: right. to get in. And
3: then you can
0: send your kid there who doesn't have the greatest essay. All of this is madness. All of this.
2: It's madness. Um, and it, when is
0: it going to end? I don't know. I, I'm just glad I, I didn't go to college. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well,
2: I, I went to NYU. I found the philosophy department, and it, there was no political correctness. There were just these like, tough-minded, all men, except for Margaret Atherton, who was brilliant and my role model. But what feminism meant was that, okay, the doors are open. Now women can stand on the shoulders of the great thinkers of the past. Yeah, mm-hmm. most of them, not all, but most were men. And that's what kills me about what you're saying about Sarah Lawrence, is that these, these colleges were started because people respected women's intellect and wanted them to be educated on a par with men. Serious philosophy, serious history, serious science. And then they turn them into these like mental health breakdown centers. They are now mental health
0: clinics. Well, I'll tell you, my daughter B, who's 16, she's a junior this year in high school, she's going to an all-girls school. And I thought it was going to be Mean Sarah, Girls. Plus. Yeah, and the Sarah Lawrence experience, you know, that, that I was sort of bracing myself for this kind of, you know, I really wanted her to learn, like read the classics and learn mm-hmm. great history. She went to the school. It was her decision. And I have to say, the school she is going to is a model of what girls' education should be. And I agree. Um, and I have she, tested she was. I have, I have helped <laughs> no, her. But the first year in ninth grade, where a lot of these other schools are, are sort of, Going down this, ah, you're unteachable at 14 anyway. We're going to talk a lot about yourself and do it. They were teaching the girls logic. I mean, right. it has been so rigorous. It's been insane. She wrote
2: rigorous. a rigorous paper on the portrait of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde, my favorite author. <laughs> I, I envied her having this assignment. But,
0: but, but that was but, the point. And I'm just watching. And they say, and they have, they, their motto is like, we turn girls into leaders. And, and somebody actually she told me a story. I'm, this is why I'm not going to name the school. But, I'm going to uh, name it. No, no, don't name it. I won't name it. Okay. Um, a girl came up to one of the teachers, or I can't remember if it was the head of school or whatever, and said, this is XX name of school for girls. And I find that if I don't identify as a, as girl. a girl, why do we have that? And the teacher, who is female, after sort of going back, you know, I understand how you feel that way. And, you know, being very sympathetic, finally said, well, you know, you're at a school for girls. And if you don't identify with being a girl, then maybe this isn't the school for you. <laughs> <Good> for <laughs> it <her>. was awesome. <laughs> but anyway. Well, let's hope that that wins out. Yeah. But you know. that's that's where you see when same-sex education, and we've seen in other schools for boys, is, is at its best when they recognize yes. what that sex needs and and really gives it to them. And, and this is, I guess, what Dr. Deborah So is saying. And yes. if we can Go back to these ideas of recognizing strengths and weaknesses and how we help, that would be great. Can I just
2: end with one thing about conversion therapy? I think it's terrible to do that to gay guys, gay women, but what about a gender nonconforming dog, a multi-poo? No, my dog, I got a female. You always
0: bring his hand no, to these gender I, No, discussions. because I was
2: listening to it, and I think that she needs conversion therapy. She does not know her. But is she a Christian? No, she's just <laughs> a, she's a multi-poo. She I attacks think, I German think, shepherds. I don't
0: think the, the conversion classes fight. are going to take her. She wants she can... to,
2: she, she's confrontational, she's a, she's a risk taker. Everything that you could say for like a hyper, like toxic masculinity, that's Izzy. I just want some therapy, conversion therapy. Take, I want her to take her to
0: the dog whisperer.
3: Who's that? No. Caesar Milan. Caesar Milan. Oh, yes. Yes. But, I think
0: that, I, I think before you go start injecting her with estrogen, I think you should consider that. I'm going to give her estrogen and then take her to the dog. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Zoe. Thank you for being on again. And goodbye. Goodbye. And we'll be back. Thanks for listening.